Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Amen. Let's pray before we look at this more closely together. Our Lord and our Father, you are creator God above all things. And yet you have revealed yourself to us by your word. By your written word, the Bible and by the living word, the Lord Jesus. And so we ask this evening as we open and study your written word together that you would use it to make us all look more and more like the living word, our Lord Jesus. And it says that in his name we pray. Amen. Now, it was recently estimated that during his playing career, he generated the whopping sum of £1 billion through shirt sales and boot sales 
alone. And outrageously, his legs were said to have been insured for the princely sum of £100 million by Lloyd's. In a recent article, the Financial Times said this, in the Western world, his name is as instantly recognizable as brands like Coca-Cola and IBM. In case you haven't guessed it yet, I'm talking about Mr. David Beckham. But the brand has been more than just about shirt sales and the really surreal idea of leg insurance. Because Beckham's also been involved in a lot of charitable work. He was appointed a Goodwill Ambassador for UNICEF in 2005. And he's been active in his involvement with several other AIDS and malaria charities since. I think it's probably fair to say that he's been a bit of a media darling for the past maybe 15 or 20 years in the UK. But you might have noticed a few weeks ago, Beckham's name hit the papers And the tone of those articles was far less positive than we might be used to. Some private emails which Beckham had sent to his own team had been leaked to a journalist. And those emails, apparently, allegedly every possible caveat, showed that at least one of the reasons for Mr. Beckham carrying out such charitable work with UNICEF and with others was that he wanted to receive a knighthood. The BBC and several broadsheets picked up on the story and it seems now, after further investigation, that the whole thing was a complex effort to extort money from Beckham. By UNICEF's account, as well as that of Mr Beckham, he has been selfless in his service of the charity. And the strength of the reaction shows quite how damaging it would be if it were to be true. And of course, it would have been damaging to the Beckham brand if he'd been doing this charitable work to serve himself. But as we start our time together this evening, I want to ask you, why? Why would it be damaging if it were proven that the only reason he had done any of this charitable work was what was in it for him? He's done a good thing. He's raised the profile of a charity, and he's raised lots of money while he was at it. So why does it really matter if the only reason he's done that is that he's keen on getting a knighthood? Intuitively, we know that it would be something awry. And it's because even in our public relations, celebrity-driven culture, doing the right thing isn't enough. Of course, you need to do the right thing, and you need to be seen to be doing the right thing. But that isn't all there is to it. Because motivation matters. Using the seemingly selfless service of other people, of charities, to actually serve your own personal advancement, well, that's that's pretty poisonous, isn't it? But the surprise from our passage in Matthew's Gospel this evening is that Jesus hits us with a warning. He says that as followers of Jesus, we are in a real danger of being caught in just this trap. The trap of spiritual public relations. The trap of doing the right thing, but doing it 
for the wrong reasons. As Robin mentioned, we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel on Sunday evenings. And last week we were in chapter 5, and Andy really helpfully unpacked for us Jesus' teaching of really a way to live that honors God. Jesus is unpacking the law in chapter 5, and he's showing disciples, Christians, how to live in a way that honors their Lord. And the word Jesus uses for that way of living is righteousness. Righteousness is a good thing, says Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 6, if you have your Bible open in front of you, he says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And if you keep your Bible open there, as we walked through chapter 5 last week, we saw Jesus starting to flesh this out a bit. So he says it isn't enough if you're a Christian just to avoid murdering someone. Chapter 5, verse 22. Real righteousness means that you don't even look at someone with hatred or anger in your heart. To honor God, it isn't just enough to avoid committing adultery. Chapter 5, verse 28. Real God-honoring living means that you don't even look at someone with lust in your heart. Jesus says that righteousness, that real, right, God-honoring living is not just about the external show. It's not about how things look. It's about internal and radical transformation. And in chapter 6, Jesus is hanging on to that same point, that same idea about righteousness not just being about the external, and he carries it and pushes it that bit further. Because he says that living in a way that looks righteous, that looks like it's the right thing, well, that can actually be a really dangerous thing. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware, says Jesus, or if you have an older translation, take heed. Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This verse carries with it the big idea of what Jesus is telling us this evening. And if you forget everything else, remember this. It's on the top of your service sheet. Beware the danger, says Jesus, of turning the service of God into the service of yourself. Jesus shows us that it's very easy to do something that looks like it's God-honoring. It looks externally righteous. And yet, because of the way we're doing it, because of our motivation for doing it, it's just another way of serving ourselves. So if you're a Christian this evening, as we reflect on our own hearts and our own motivations... I suspect what Jesus has to say to us this evening might be pretty searching. But all of that's been quite abstract so far. What does this actually look like if you're a Christian in day-to-day life? Well, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about together. Again, if you have a service sheet with you, if you keep that open in front of you, there are some headings there that you might find helpful to have in front of you. The first one of those, spiritual public relations, what it looks like. Chapter 6, verse 2. When you give to the needy, 
Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Jesus starts out and is fleshing out of what this might look like by using the example of giving, of giving money to those in need. And he paints the picture of of someone or a category of people called the hypocrites or the play actors. And the hypocrites, Jesus says, they hire musicians to play a fanfare so that people around them can't possibly miss the fact that they're about to be oh so very generous. And as we read it, it sounds like a pretty ridiculous sounding example. It all sounds very crass to our modern ears. And it's quite possible that Jesus is actually having a bit of fun. And he's being overly exaggerated to make the point. But it does make the point. Because as we reflect on this and what it might look like for us at Chammers, especially right now in the life of Chammers, it might seem a bit less comical and a bit more sobering. As elders, we were and are so very encouraged by the response of the whole church to this new building, to giving generously and sacrificially, to pressing on with gospel work in the south side of Edinburgh. But if, if you're someone who has given and who has given generally, generously to the building project, how easy it would be to let slip in conversation over coffee that we had to cut back on our holidays this year or we had to stick a pin in the house extension so that we could give to the church project. Now, don't get me wrong, the practice in itself was absolutely the right thing to do. Giving to the needy in chapter 6, the right thing to do. Giving to the, the, the work of the gospel in this new building, the right thing to do. But the question Jesus asks is not whether you're giving, but why are you giving? Is it really in the service of God? Or perhaps more probing still, is it completely in the service of God and of others? Is that your sole motivation? It's a pretty searching question. And Jesus shows that these murky motivations don't just creep into our attitude towards money. Chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now again, I suspect that there are very few of us who'd be tempted to pray loudly in the corner of Morningside Road. If you are, then all power to you. That's the example that Jesus uses. And again, because it maybe seems quite abstract or separate from where we are just now, culturally, we might think that this, is, this isn't possibly something that really applies to us. Until we start to peel it back a bit and look at the underlying principle. Praying on street corners might be pretty alien to us. But the reason for praying on street corners might not be. Being keen to be seen to pray and to know how to pray, and to pray well, and to pray with eloquence or biblical literacy, well, that's something that might be a bit more familiar from the platform at Prayer Focus in our house group. 
Public prayer is a great opportunity to show quite how thoughtful, quite how biblically educated or literate you might be. Or perhaps the temptation is even more subtle still. Telling someone that we've been praying about a situation, possibly because we have been, possibly because we're keen to encourage them, but also because, well, it can't harm for them to know that we've been praying, can it? Jesus says that it's very easy to turn doing the right thing, even something as fundamental to Christian living as prayer, to twist it into something that ultimately serves us. And finally, along with giving and praying, Jesus turns to the discipline of fasting. Now, you may or may not fast as part of your walk with Jesus Jesus seems to assume that his disciples will be fasting. Notice he says, when you fast, just as he said, when you give and when you pray. And again, notice how he shows that even this discipline can be dangerous. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. This is a particularly easy one to drop into conversation or to make public, especially in a church like Chalmers where so much of what we do revolves around food. All it takes is for somebody to offer you a biscuit and there's your chance. That might sound a bit silly, but it's actually the the, the truth of it. It kind of gets to the heart of it. Because it doesn't take a lot for us to to take an act which in its right place is good, was designed to honour God. Giving, praying, fasting. And to turn it into something that serves ourselves. So just how do we make these acts serve ourselves? Well, it's all about why we do them. Read again the second half of verse 2. Giving that they might be praised by others. Second half of verse 5, praying that they may be seen by others. And again, verse 16, that their fasting may be seen by others. The danger is that each of these disciplines can be turned into a spiritual public relations exercise. A chance to raise our own reputation and public profile. Now remember that Jesus isn't addressing Pharisees here. He isn't addressing the religious conservatives of the day. He uses them as examples. But he's addressing his own disciples, real followers of Jesus. So if you're a Christian here this evening, let me ask you a direct question. Why do you do what you do? Why do you give money to charity or to church? Why do you pray? Why do you fast if you do so? Is it always done with an absolute commitment to the service of God and of other people? Or does it have anything to do with the spiritual kudos that comes with looking godly? Jesus looks right into the darker recesses or motivations here and he shows us quite how easy it is for them to become pretty murky. 
And as well as diagnosing the problem, Jesus also gives us a prognosis. He explains why spiritual public relations is a dangerous thing. And that's our next point this evening. Spiritual public relations, why it's dangerous. Read again with me, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And again, it's the same when praying to be seen. Verse 5, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when drawing attention to our own fasting, verse 16, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. It's no accident, I think, that Jesus uses really the same structure through all of these. He's making the same point in all of them. Now think for a moment back to the example of David Beckham that we looked at earlier on. I don't know the truth of that story or not, but it serves as a warning about the risks of using charity or philanthropic work for our own ends. Ultimately, it doesn't always work. Your emails can be leaked. Conversations can be overheard. Someone can ultimately find you out. And that might be the kind of reasoning that we'd expect Jesus to give in this section for not pursuing spiritual public relations. We might expect Jesus to say that, well, ultimately someone's going to catch you out. Don't bother trying. You're going to be shown as a fraud. But that isn't what Jesus says. He doesn't try to show his disciples that if you're a fraud or if you pray to try and impress people, you'll ultimately be found out. In fact, the surprising thing is that it's quite the opposite. Jesus says that if you're keen to turn praying or giving or fasting in a way to, look you, to make you look more spiritual, then you can do that. And what's more, you might even do it successfully. It's probably why it's such a tempting thing. If you want your house group to know how great you are at praying then the chances are, if you stick at it long enough, they may well start to think that you're quite good at praying. Well done. If you want someone to think of you as being generous with your cash, then the truth is, if, they, if you're generous enough, then someone's bound to notice it at some point and give you a jolly good pat on the back. Good for you. Now, Jesus doesn't say that if you try this stuff, it's not going to work. The warning he gives is that before you try it, Before you use spiritual disciplines to raise your own social or religious standing, know this. That is all you will get. The words Jesus uses in each of these, you have already received your reward. That's it. Paid in full. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, as we'll see in a moment or two, we're really seeking short-term gain if we're looking for spiritual kudos. We're selling ourselves short. Because instead of that spiritual public relations, Jesus shows us what real God-honoring righteousness looks like. And he explains why it is so much more attractive than spiritual fraud. 
And that's the next heading on our service sheet. Pursuing private righteousness, what it looks like. Chapter 6, verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Chapter 6, verse 6. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And lastly, chapter 6, verse 17. But when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they look, forgive me, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. So what's the common thread with all these three examples? Well, it's privacy, isn't it? When you give money, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. When you're praying, don't do it on a street corner. Go into your room, shut the door. When you're fasting, and you need to be out and about, don't make it obvious that you're fasting. Comb your hair, wash your face. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't pray in public. Notice that in the Lord's Prayer, he prays to our Father, not my Father. Corporate prayer is really important in the life of the church, as we saw this morning in Nehemiah. Nor does Jesus think that we should slink away and live out our faith in private. Remember last week in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls Christians to let our lives shine like lights on a hill, to live in such a way that people around us will see our good deeds and give glory to God. That's not a very private thing at all. So what's Jesus getting at in chapter 6? I read a book a few years ago called Who You Are When No One Is Looking. And I think that's kind of at the heart of what Jesus is getting at. It's about Christian integrity and it's a good question to ask ourselves a good litmus test of where we are as we reflect on our own motivations Robin touched on this in the introduction this evening let me ask you who are you when no one's looking is your prayer life the same in the quiet of your own living room or your own bedroom as it is on a Thursday night at Prayer Focus. Now, this might be a particular challenge if you have a particular role in the church that is inherently public. It can be very easy for there to be a disconnect between our public and our private spiritual lives. And so it's really, really important that we heed this warning from Jesus. Beware the danger of turning the service of God into the service of ourselves. Real righteousness, says Jesus, real God-honoring living does not seek the spotlight for itself. But it's the same in the privacy of our own minds, of our own living rooms, of our own bedrooms, as it is on a Thursday night or a Sunday night as we come to pray together. Now, as we reflect on this, I certainly find myself feeling a bit uncomfortable. We might feel shamed by our own 
mixed and murky motivations. But I want us to see that Jesus doesn't use shame as a motivation in this passage. It's clear from the overblown examples he uses that spiritual public relations is a really ugly thing, that it's laughable, that it's stupid. But he he, he doesn't use it as a shaming thing to motivate us towards pursuing private, real integrity in our godliness. He shows us why it's a really attractive thing, why it's worth pursuing godliness. And that's our final point this evening, pursuing private righteousness, why it's attractive. Pursue the kind of godliness that's the same in the comfort of your own home as it is in the publicity of a church context why? Well, again, he gives us the same reason in each of these three examples. Verse 4, when giving. Verse 6, when praying. Verse 18, when fasting. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus says that instead of looking for the reward or recognition of your peers, pursue true private godliness. And you'll be rewarded by your Father in heaven. Now, interestingly and slightly frustratingly, he doesn't explain in detail exactly what that reward is in this text. He carries on, we'll see next time we're in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6, to encourage his disciples to store up treasures in heaven in verse 21. So there is a future reward for believers in Jesus that we'll receive when we're with God face to face. But in our text this evening, there is a hint about the sort of thing that he's getting at, about the sort of of reward that is given to those who pursue private godliness. When you read through verses 1 to 18, there's a little phrase that's repeated over and over and over. I wonder if you noticed it. It's repeated 10 times in the course of 18 verses. It's two small words that we're probably prone to just skipping by. Your Father. He doesn't say your Lord, though he could do. He doesn't say God or your God, as he does later in chapter 6. No, he says your Father. And it's said so many times in this short space of time, they're almost shoehorned in over and over. And I think it's a deliberate thing. I think Jesus is trying to convey that that this is a relational thing. The reward of true righteousness, of godliness, that longs to serve God above ourselves, is not the praise of our peers, but it's intimacy and relationship with God. Not just as Lord, though he is that, but as your Father. Now, am I reading too much into those two small words, your father? Preachers are prone to do that, aren't we? Well, if they were on their own, then maybe. But as we draw things to a close, look with me at verses 5 to 8. Jesus paints a picture of three different kinds of prayer life. So firstly, he paints the hypocrite. We've looked at that together already in verse 5. The person who prays 
And there's not a hint of intimacy or relationship about it. There's actually nothing really to do with God about it. He doesn't really need to concern himself with this. It's all about how people around me will see me. Then verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. The Gentiles, or in another translation, the pagans, they aren't speaking to their God. They're heaping up empty phrases, or they're babbling, hoping that if they somehow say the right words, they say enough of them, they say them in the right order, that their God will hear them. And it's all very uncertain, speaking words or mantras into the dark in the hope that someone somewhere will listen and act. Jesus says, don't be like either of these groups of people. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Gentiles when you pray. Why? Verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. The cold self-service of hypocritical prayer, the uncertainty of pagan or Gentile prayer, both contrast so sharply with what Jesus is advocating for. Your Father knows what you need. So personal and relational. And we see that fleshed out throughout the Lord's Prayer. We've not got time to spend uh, in detail in the Lord's Prayer this evening. But what I found really helpful this week is just looking at it it as it fits in to the flow of this argument through Matthew chapter 6. How it contrasts the prayer of the hypocrite, the prayer of the Gentile, with the prayer of the truly godly, motivated Christian. God is God. He is to be hallowed and honoured, verse 9. But he's also our Father. He knows what we need before we ask him, verse 8. But then Jesus carries on to tell us still to ask him. For our daily bread, verse 11. For forgiveness, verse 12. And for protection from the evil one, verse 13. So why on earth should we be asking God for anything if he already knows what we need? This is right at the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. He's advocating a real and living relationship. A God that you can approach and know as a child approaches a father. So as we close, if you're a Christian, I want you to reflect on this this evening. Pursuing a life of godliness, of of righteousness, a life that honors God is a really good thing. Jesus has spent a long time commanding us to do so, commending it to us. But as important as whether you do it, is why you do it. So is it a way for you to build a public profile for yourself? Or will you pursue godliness to foster a real and living relationship with God as your father? Because that is a completely different thing. And it is so much more attractive than the facade of spiritual public relations. And if you're not a Christian this evening, I wonder if you've ever really considered that this is what you're saying no to when you say no to Christian things. See, it'd be easy for you to leave here this evening that, well, by choosing not to follow Jesus, all you're doing is turning down a set of rules or a lifestyle 
But the climax of this gospel account of this book of Matthew shows us that no matter how hard we try, not even the most scrupulous follower of God's law is right with God. That we've all rejected him and chosen to serve ourselves, some through blatant disobedience, others by manipulative obedience to God's law. But the message of the cross is that God himself has made a way that because Jesus died the death that we deserve for our rejection of him, we can approach him not as a way to impress other people, not with the uncertainty of Gentile prayer, but as a child approaches a loving father adopted as a child of God. Your father, just reflect on those two words for a minute. Your father. Two very simple words. But what wonderful news. Let's come before him now in prayer. Let's pray. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Lord, as we read through this teaching of Jesus that so diagnoses our own weakness, our own self-service, we confess now that we so often exchange a hunger for righteousness that glorifies you with a hunger for our own glory. That we even turn the service of you into the service of ourselves. And so in the silence of our hearts, we cast that sin at the foot of your cross and we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you as we stand before you even now that because of the blood of Jesus, we have confidence that we have been forgiven and made right with you, and more than that still, we have confidence that we have been adopted into your family. Our Father. Lord, help us now to pursue real righteousness by your Holy Spirit. Enable us to live lives that seek to bring you glory. To pursue intimate relationship with you in our prayer, in our giving, in our fasting, in all of life. And we ask all of this, trusting that you are a God who hears us and who answers our prayer. And we do so in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.